0: Hey, Bankless Nation. Today we are having a special episode, a debate about Bitcoin and Ether, the infamous debate, which one is money? What is sound money? Which one is more sound money? And joined me co-moderating this debate is Dennis Porter, who I've actually done one of these debates with before. So this is actually round two of a uh, ETH versus Bitcoin ultra uh, sound money debate. Dennis, are you ready to get started with this?
1: Yeah, I'm ready. Thank you for having me on, David. I really appreciate it. I had a really great time last uh, debate that we went back and forth. It was uh, mostly civil for the most part. So it was a good back and forth. We were able to discuss our points. It was more of a general Bitcoin versus Ethereum type of uh, conversation. But this one looks like we're going to be focusing a lot on sound money aspect of Bitcoin uh, versus Ethereum. So I'm looking forward to having it. We'll be joined by a couple of great ones as well.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And so where as last debate, it was just me versus Dennis. And then eventually we tapped in some people from the audience. We are bringing in uh, some technical people as well. So I'm tapping in Justin Drake. And then Dennis, you want to intro who uh, you have brought along for your teammate? Yeah, I brought along Manib Ali.
1: He's the founder of Stacks. He's uh, building on Bitcoin is uh, what they're working on trying to bring smart contracts, NFTs, uh, you name it, all the fun stuff that you Ethereum folks say can only be done on Ethereum. He's trying to uh, bridge that gap with Stacks. So really interested to have him on. But also the reason why I brought him on is mostly for his technical skills, technical savvy, similar to Drake, really understands the, you know, the framework of how these
0: technologies work. All right. Well, without further ado, I think we should go ahead and get right into the conversation about Bitcoin versus Ether, which is more money. And so we'll get right there after a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that is going to completely change how we use DeFi. If you've been using Ethereum for the past 12 months, you've probably noticed the high gas fees and the slow confirmation times that have been plaguing DeFi. Too many people want to use Ethereum and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. That's where Arbitrum comes in. Arbitrum is a layer two to Ethereum, which means Arbitrum can increase Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what we are used to paying. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. This is why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and make an overall better experience for your users, go to developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps building on Arbitrum. Arbitrum has been working with over 300 teams, including Ethereum's top infrastructure projects, and will be opening up to all users shortly. There are so many apps coming online to Arbitrum, so you may want to pack your bags in preparation for the great migration to the Arbitrum Layer 2. To keep up to speed with Arbitrum, follow them on Twitter at Arbitrum and join their Discord. Living a bankless life requires taking control over your own private keys, not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their Ledger hardware wallet, which makes proper private key management a breeze. But the Ledger ecosystem is much more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet and the Ledger Live app. And if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite DeFi apps all in one spot, Ledger Live is where you want to be. Not only does Ledger let you buy your crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into all of the DeFi apps and services that you're used to. Using Ledger Live, you can stake your ETH and Lido, swap on DEXs like Paraswap, or display your NFTs with Rainbow. You can also use Wallet Connect inside of Ledger Live to connect to all the other DeFi apps that keep coming online. DeFi never stops growing and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all of the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has and stay tuned as more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? Go to ledger.com, grab a Ledger, download Ledger Live and get all of your DeFi apps all in one space. All right, guys and we are back to get into this conversation about bitcoin and ether what is more money uh so we have two new guests on the show today you guys just met dennis but we are also joined by muneeb ali and justin drake uh muneeb you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your background and who you are uh,
2: of course thanks for having me uh so i muneeb uh my background is mostly distributed systems um i did a phd in computer science at princeton and then got into bitcoin in around 2013. And uh, many of you might know me mostly from the Bitcoin community, but a little known fact that I was actually part of the Genesis sale of Ethereum and I have been involved in the Ethereum community, uh, for example, was part of the seed round of OpenSea and and a bunch of other things like that.
0: Fantastic, thanks for that that color, Muneeb. Uh, If you are a frequent Bankless listener, you probably know who Justin Drake is, but if you are new to Bankless, Justin, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you come from and what you do in the world of crypto.
3: Sure. Sure. So um, I'm uh, Justin Drake from the Ethereum Foundation. I mostly work on a set of upgrades to Ethereum, which we used to call Ethereum 2.0, and that includes uh, proof of stake and sharding. I guess my background is technology. I studied mathematics. I was a FPGA programmer in the past life, um,
0: Ethereum space. So I know a thing or two
3: about Bitcoin as well.
0: And Dennis, I know we talked a little bit about you in the intro, but also want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to be in the world of Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, I jumped into the world of Bitcoin in 2017. Tried to go all in on mining, uh, but that was a lost endeavor. Eventually, I decided to kind of hunker down for a couple of years, do my due diligence, study this asset, study this market. Uh, I'm a Bitcoin only kind of guy. Some would call me a maximalist. So I prefer to go by Bitcoin only, but. Uh, Now I've jumped fully all in on the uh, world of content creation, so I started a podcast called Smart People Shit, and I also do another show called The Update, where I regularly update my listeners on what's going on in the space. Also a very uh, avid and uh, consistent contributor to Twitter spaces, where I do some of the better rooms. Also involved politically as well, so helping candidates like Erica Rhodes in California's 30th District try to take down the most anti-Bitcoin congressman
0: in office right now. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Dennis. And for anyone tuning in to Bankless for the first time, I'm David Hoffman, co-host of of Bankless, where we are big proponents as Ether, as money, uh, decentralized finance, and overall living a bankless life and promoting tools that helps one live a bankless life. And with that out of the way, gentlemen, I think we need to start this conversation by uh, setting some foundations. And the whole point of this conversation is figuring out which one of these assets is more money. But first we need to figure out what money is and importantly, what is sound money? So Dennis, in your opinion, what do you think sound money is? I'll keep it real
1: brief and short and simple here. I, uh, let's start with what money is. Money is a tool. Uh, we discovered it 10,000 years ago. It's what helped us form societies. We use it for storing value, transferring value, uh, and measuring value. Uh, for me, sound money is money that is not prone to sudden changes appreciation or depreciation and purchasing power over the long term so pretty short and sweet uh it has three uses storing transferring um and uh, measuring value and then as sound money uh, it maintains its value doesn't go up or down appreciation or depreciation rapidly in the short term or long term obviously we'll get a little bit more into that as we continue but just keep it simple for now
0: justin how about your definition of money and sound money what is sound money to you
3: Right. So for me, um, money is um, basically an asset which has monetary premium. Monetary premium being this this magic meme energy, economic energy that provides this asset more value than the base utility. And the, the classic example in my mind is gold, right? Gold has this industrial utility. It's used in every single iPhone. But if we were to try and value gold purely on utilitarian terms, it would be worth maybe, you know, uh, um, a, a trillion dollars but it turns out that it's worth like, more like 10 trillion dollars and so this this extra value is, is monetary premium um, partly because it's used as money and so it, it gains this premium in terms of what is sound money um for me it's kind of the the ability to simply to accrue and maintain this this uh, monetary premium um and so basically there's a there's a space component and a time component the, the space component is is how how much monetary premium Can, can it accrue how big can it become and the time component is how well can it retain this monetary premium over time
0: i love that answer as well munib tell us about your opinions of money and sound money what what properties are required to produce sound money
2: yeah i think i think in my mind uh money uh differs from sound money quite drastically like in the sense that uh, money would focus more on the uh, medium of exchange part, like anything that you can use on a day-to-day basis. Like for example, if you're traveling, you land in a new country, you pick up the local currency there, and then you spend it. Right? Like you don't you don't think about that currency as like a long-term store of value. The minute you were to think about that currency as a long-term store of value, you would actually evaluate it very differently. Uh, so I think in terms of as soon as you start talking about sound money. I think you start uh, looking more into the long-term store of value and potentially the unit of account, right? So if I'm, if I'm holding sound money for over, let's say a very long time, like a decade or, or something, uh, then I, I want to make sure that, you know, how will other things get priced against this asset? So that's, that's kind of like the uh, difference in my mind. All so right.
3: one concept that uh, I use internally to not have this confusion about money and sound money is I, I use the term currency instead of money, right? Mm-hmm. Because what is currency it comes from the word current. It's basically money that flows. And so really, I think it's, it's important to distinguish, f- maybe for this conversation, currency. And you even said the word currency, Monib, and money, which I guess for this conversation will be sound money.
0: So I don't think either of us, either two parties, the Bitcoin or the ETH party is interested in their money being currency. I think we both are okay with it being currency, but really what we're going after here is the sound money property. Uh, and ultimately, this is basically like, which assets number is going to go up the most, uh, more or less over time? Like if you kind of really bake down the thing, is like, which, which one holds its value and accrues and captures its value over time the most? Does anyone have any problems with that differentiation? I mean, just
1: to be clear there, though, sound money, when you are looking at the definition of it, uh, it it, it doesn't necessarily have to go up in value over time. Mm -hmm. It can also go down in value over time, as long as it's very slow and Mm -hmm. incremental over time. So if you're looking at the actual definition, um, yes, we would all want our sound money to go up over time, obviously. But the true definition uh, is a stable money, not necessarily Mm -hmm. a money that always goes up in value. Okay. All right.
3: So I think yeah. that's a very historical definition, and I think the notion of money is is all around shelling points, and these shelling points change as technology progresses over time. And so, what might be, you know, a reasonable definition of sound money in the past, you know, you can list a bunch of properties. If you know you are able to innovate and come up with properties that transcend these old properties, now then suddenly you've redefined the notion of money, and part of the reason is because there's this comparative dynamic or even competitive dynamic. Um, and you, know, you can look at it, for example, with, with, with gold and Bitcoin, right? Um, it's possible that Bitcoin will, will dethrone gold and gold will no longer be considered sound money, you know, maybe because it doesn't have properties such as be, being digital. Um, and so really, it's important to look at these shelling points and properties in the context of time and innovation.
0: I just, think just set, said some... di- differently, there's a, a, a Gresham's law in economics where it called bad money drives out good. And I think that's what Justin Drake is saying, where, well, Bitcoin and gold, they have really similar properties, but like, what one do you think is going to drive out the other? Uh, and I think maybe Gresham's law is basically saying, well, money collapses, co- converges down to sound money over time.
1: I think it's important to know this there, too, that... Um... It doesn't make it not sound money any longer. I think just that in over history, humans coalesce around the soundest money. So gold didn't stop being sound money. It's just that Bitcoin is much sounder than gold. Just like how gold stole stole monetary premium away from silver, Bitcoin will steal monetary premium away from gold. So um, just a little bit of nuance there. I don't think we necessarily disagree.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll share my mental model here, like, uh, in terms of when you mentioned the numbers going up part, like, I think, interestingly, uh, like currency is a solved problem, right? So, like, it, it, like, there's nothing kind of like new there. We already have currencies and we use them on a daily basis. But sound money, interestingly, is not a solved problem in today's world. And uh, whichever solution you look at, you know, look at Bitcoin or ETH, I think both are in their uh, discovery phase right now. And in the discovery phase, you're likely going to go up in value because their market size are potentially much larger than the market, uh, market size today. Right? And once, once you actually reach a stable point, then it will be interesting to see that the, the sound money aspect, does it retain value, go up in value, or actually slowly lose value over, over time?
0: Okay. I feel like that is now adequately defined. So unless anyone wants any final statements about the definition of sound money, I think we can go ahead and get into the differences of monetary properties of Bitcoin and ether. Sound good. All right. So since uh, Bitcoin came first in history, I think Bitcoiners get to go first on this one. Uh, Dennis Muneeb, what about the properties of Bitcoin make it the most sound money? Muneeb, you want to go or me? I
2: think you can go first.
0: Okay. Yeah, for me,
1: the attributes that make Bitcoin sound money that protect its ability to be sound money are the fact that its issuance is extremely stable and highly predictable. Bitcoin has a hard supply cap. So that's that cap is set in stone at 21 million, can never go up, can never go down. Obviously, people could burn their Bitcoin, make it even more scarce. Uh, It's also very extremely difficult to create. It requires a large amount of energy. Labor theory of value kind of kicks in here in this place. But most important to me, the reason why I believe that Bitcoin is the most sound money is not just because it is extremely stable, very difficult, or nearly impossible, theoretically, to corrupt or manipulate by uh, governments or those in power but because these components themselves cannot be changed. So it's very stable, highly predictable, can't be changed. Bitcoin has a hard supply cap, can't be changed. It's very difficult to create. Uh, And that actually goes up in difficulty over time, uh, which increases its value and makes it more sound. So the biggest part for me, when you're looking at sound money is, does it have the attributes that you and I will probably agree on? But the one thing that I think is the most important is removing human control or the human ability to manipulate the issuance or the supply cap of that money at
0: in any at in any given time? Muni, before uh, I bring in Justin here, do you want to add anything onto that?
2: Yeah, uh, I think my my lens is a little bit uh,
0: more technical, like in the sense that uh, for me,
2: the 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 fact that there is proof of work, uh, I'm kind of like involved here actually adds to the fact that uh, it is it is sound money like in the sense that uh, you know back in the day people would actually do some work to dig up gold and that actually adds an element of, of scarcity here right uh, and I think I think that that is a fundamental component of the the proof of work and I would say uh, secondly uh, when it's easy to define you know some sort of new cryptocurrency and basically say that it has a hard uh, cap, I think that's relatively simple to do. I think what's what's like much more interesting here is uh, the community that has emerged over the last decade around Bitcoin and how they have uh, basically inherited this uh, this value and they're kind of like the defendants of the the 21 million cap. Uh, and it, it, I think I think it's the uh, it's the value add by the users of the network and the community of the network. And the and the last part there would be that Bitcoin as a network was really designed from day one uh, to be a global network uh, where meaning that anyone around the world with no, with you know a normal laptop computer could actually open up their laptop and independently verify that this is the correct state and i have the right number of balances so i think it's a combination of these things like proof of work with global access along with a community uh, that is going to basically die on the hill of like you would never be able to change the change, change the supply
0: I think that's interesting, Muni, that you're adding in the uh, community behind uh, one of Bitcoin's defense layers, because uh, I've frequently got in debate about like whether or not Bitcoin has a social contract or not. And many, many Bitcoiners uh, will say that Bitcoin doesn't rely on humans at all. It actually relies on math and math alone. That's one of the properties about Bitcoin. But you, are, you, are you saying that there's actually a, a community human involvement that also puts up a shield around Bitcoin and makes it immutable? I, th- I think
2: basically what I've noticed is Bitcoin makes it extremely hard to make changes at the consensus level. Uh, so the threshold to ma- making any changes to the consensus level is extremely high. Like the number of miners required, the number of scrutiny required for any even small changes. And that, that sometimes gets, gets criticized as well. That Bitcoin doesn't evolve, doesn't change that rapidly. And I think the community uh, where they play a role, and I think this was very apparent in, the, uh, in, in kind of like the block size wars, uh, where the community was basically, it was at, at one point, even the big companies and exchanges were on one side, uh, but it was the average users who basically said, we we're not going to let this change pass through, we, we just outright reject it. So I, I don't think that they have the property of coming together to define a change, but they're just very, very good at rejecting changes uh, and it, basically saying that we will always fall back to the base case to make no change here.
0: Justin, has anything that uh, Dennis or Muneeb said uh, raised a flag in your mind about the soundness of money?
3: Yes. Um, So I think the the main red flag is basically the the security aspect of Bitcoin. Um, I I just don't see the long term security aspect of Bitcoin. I think it's it's a broken design, to be completely honest. Um, I think part of the reason I think it's a completely broken design from a security standpoint is because it's, Lin- it's security Lindy resets every four years. So every four years, um, you know, we're, we're asking the question, can Bitcoin be secured on smaller issuance? Uh, and in that sense, you can kind of think of Satoshi as kind of this, uh, this degen blockchain designer, kind of trying to see how far he can push down the security of Bitcoin until eventually it, it kind of breaks. Um, and so it's kind of like slowly boiling the frog um, over several decades um, and, and kind of seeing uh, if and when uh, it breaks. Um, I guess the the answer that bitcoiners would would put forward here is that uh, Bitcoin will be secured by by transaction fees. Um, I mean, we already discussed that you know transaction fees is kind of grade B fuel for a number of reasons. One of them is that it's very volatile, it's also can be stolen. but even if we remove, Uh, kind of these issues, if we just look at the quantitative uh, aspect of transaction fees, um, today, transaction fees on Bitcoin is about 2% um, of of the issue. And so like 50 times less. Um, And if you compare it to um, other systems like Ethereum, it's also 50 times less. Um, and basically, you can ask yourself, why is that? And I think the answer is basically that Bitcoin provides very little transactional utility. The utility of Bitcoin is in the hodling, is in the not moving. You buy Bitcoin, you put it in a cold wallet, you hold it for two decades, and then you know you sell it. And so that's two transactions over over two 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 decades. Um, and so basically, Bitcoin has in a way cannibalized its security, uh, you know, plan by not adopting, you know, a, a virtual machine that allows for, for, for programmability. And, but then, you know, a, a Bitcoiner such as Muni might come in and say, hey, I, I have Stacks and I will provide programmability and I will provide, you know, scalability, uh, you know, through this, this side chain. But the problem with side chains is that they leech transaction fees. Um, so if you have a transaction on Stacks, that transactional utility is gonna be captured by the Stacks network, it's not gonna be captured by, by uh, Bitcoin, but then you might say, "Hey, hold on! In order to have transactions on stacks, we need to have you know deposits and withdrawals to and from stacks, um, and you know those would go through Bitcoin, and so you'd be tra- you know make, paying fees on Bitcoin. But that's that's also not the case in the long term. If you have a very successful sidechain all the deposits and withdrawals and all the bridging will happen natively with that blockchain. Like one very exa- easy example is an exchange, right? An exchange can just hold a lot of, of wrapped Bitcoin on, on, on stacks. And basically when someone buys Bitcoin stacks, it just goes directly to that user internally to the stacks. And so um, really the, the model of scalability and programmability for Bitcoin is inconsistent with, it, with its security. And then once you don't have security, you've lost, you've lost everything, you know, and one of the things that you've lost in particular, um, most likely is, is your scarcity, like the whole, you know, meme and narrative of having this 21 million cap is, is, is an illusion, right? It, it might hold true in the short term. But really, what Bitcoiners are doing is that they're trading off short term predictability. Um, sorry, they're trading off long term predictability for short term predictability. So in the short term, we can understand this this monetary um, schedule very, very well. But at some point it becomes unsustainable and something must change in the long time.
1: I, I want to make, get Maneeb to jump in on the stack stuff, but there was one thing at the very beginning that uh, you had said that I thought was interesting that I'd like to address. But Maneeb will, I think, address the majority of what you just said. But in the very beginning, you were talking about issuance uh, and supply issuance. Um, well, the difference between I think really Ethereum and Bitcoin, which is a very important distinction here, is issuance versus a supply schedule. There's no issuance rate on Bitcoin. It's purely just a supply schedule. And in 2140, when it is finished, there will be no more um, supply issued Um, with Ethereum. The problem I see when you decide to say, well, we need to have an issuance rate that we can manipulate or change you. That's when you introduce the question of how much is enough how much issuance is enough for minimum viable security? And unfortunately, when you start asking that question, the only person who can answer it is a human being. And th- thus being a human being coming into the situation, it requires human control and human manipulation over the monetary supply, over the monetary schedule. And so that's why I prefer a supply schedule. Um, when you know, when you say that uh, it's only dependent on fees, yeah, that, that is the future that Bitcoiners see. I'm so bullish on the price of Bitcoin that I do believe that fees, and they have over time, if you look at it, there's charts out there you can look up. I can't post any here like I normally do on Twitter spaces. I can post some charts up top. If but, you send me a link, I can share Yeah, there are charts that show the uh, the fees are over time predicted to become the dominant reward when mining. But um, I would love for, um, obviously, Justin, I'm sure you probably had something to say back to that, but I think Manib should address the stacks. Uh, yeah, I think that that's wanted.
2: a... That's a, that's a very uh, well-known type of criticism for uh, Bitcoin's uh, supply uh, and like, how, would, how would the incentives work once the Bitcoin's run out, right? And I think the way to, the way to think about this is that, uh, first of all, let's separate out proof of work uh, from the incentives form. Uh, so proof of work will keep functioning, right? Like that thing is there as long as there are incentives for miners to mine, they will keep doing the work and at some difficulty level, and they will, they will, they will still secure that. Uh, interestingly, I think you can look at the uh, phase during which the Coinbase rewards are coming out as almost like a bootstrapping phase for Bitcoin, right? And I think the biggest difference between, you know, my mental view and Justin's mental, uh, mental model here is that I actually don't look at Bitcoin as a transaction network at all. So it doesn't matter to me how many transactions Bitcoin is doing. I look at Bitcoin as a settlement layer right? And that's, that's literally how Stacks is uh, defined as well. So it's actually not, not a side chain, like we call it a layer 1.5, and it has cross layer consensus between Bitcoin and Stacks, meaning that the consensus transactions are literally happening with Bitcoin. So the Stacks miners are heavily incentivized to pay very high transaction fees uh, because they want to mine a block. So if the incentives on Stacks go up, Incentives on the Bitcoin side also go up, and those, those incentives are not coin-based rewards; they are actually transaction fees. So these people, like if Stacks is valuable, Stacks has a you know three point five billion dollar market cap right now, very small in the grand scheme of things, but if Stacks is successful, and there are more incentives there, that actually directly results in more transaction fees, very high transaction fees, because these people are heavily competing with each other, and that's the settlement use case. And I see uh, Bitcoin as mostly as a settlement layer. And I think that given the limited block space on Bitcoin, people will be willing to pay insanely high transaction fees to put any data on, on, on the chain. And so, so I'm actually like not worried about uh, the incentive mechanism for of work in the long term.
0: Justin, do you have anything you want to say to that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the most interesting point is on the, the settlement layer, but I'm happy to also reply to, to Dennis. But um, I mean, I'm, I'm very curious to, to, to know basically, um how much is Stacks paying like the way the way that uh in in Ethereum land we have shared security is basically through rollups where basically these these rollups pay for putting data on on the shards on the Ethereum blockchain and this is exactly the words you use pay for putting data on the blockchain now m- my understanding is that Bitcoin is not rollup friendly so you can't have um you can't have this model instead you might have a a a a different model and my question to you is basically um if you have twice as many transactions on stacks does it mean that you bring twice as much data on the bitcoin blockchain my guess is that you're going to say the answer is no like there's going to be every single block you know there's at most a constant amount uh, of block space that's going to be consumed um and that's going to be orthogonal to the transactional utility that that Stacks is providing
2: yeah, so that's 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 not not how it works. And uh, basically, let me clarify that rollup point a little bit. So I think the only difference between rollups uh, on the Ethereum side and rollups rollup type systems on the Bitcoin side is the computational power, right? So Bitcoin does not have a full-featured, complete programming language, but it does have Bitcoin Script, and you could do limited type of uh, computations there. We don't even do that, right? So we mostly are uh, automatically publishing hashes on the Bitcoin side, but this is actually cross consensus, meaning that uh, part of the part of your application is literally running on the Bitcoin side. I'll, I'll give you an example of a Bitcoin lending application. So the Bitcoin lending application has your Bitcoin on the Bitcoin main chain. If you're lending your Bitcoin, you're actually paying a Bitcoin transaction fee to send out your Bitcoin. Your collateral in, in a stable coin could be in a smart contract on the stack side. Right, so you, I think the fundamental disagreement, again, between the Bitcoin and Ethereum camps is this idea that you need a full tiering complete language at the base layer. Uh, in our world, we are like, you don't need the full tiering complete language at the base layer. You can still build applications without having the full tiering complete language at the base layer.
3: I mean, the key word that you said here was hash, right, and not data. And there's a very different distinction between a hash of the data and the data, right? Hash
2: is constant size yes but it depends on it it depend on the it's the order of applications not order of something else so it's order of usage how many users how many applications are but let's say, even forget about hashes at the at the end of the day we're talking about a very scarce resource which is the block space I think you and I would agree that the block space can not grow infinitely so the block space on ethereum is is scarce block space on Bitcoin is scarce and at some point, the transaction fees is really how much are people willing to pay to write anything. Doesn't matter if it's a hash, doesn't matter if it's something else. If they're willing to pay to write to a scarce resource. And that's where the value of the transaction fee is coming from.
3: It does matter because if you're making one single checkpoint every single block, for example, then you're putting, you just need you know, one transaction per block and that's a constant amount. And so there's, there's, there won't be any necessarily a competitive dynamic there.
2: Is your is your argument that Bitcoin block space will not be scarce? That people won't be willing no, to pay a no. higher transaction? No, Is
3: that the the demand for the for the for the block space won't be that large because it's only one hash or one transaction per block?
2: So I will disagree on two points. A, it's not one hash per block. Like that's not how stacks works. It's a, it's a big O of miners, the number of miners plus the applications. Okay. So it's a so the big O of miners plus the big O of applications that are doing the cross-chain consensus, meaning part of their data is literally on the Bitcoin side. And secondly, I would say that uh, I am willing to take the bet that the block space on Bitcoin is going to be insanely valuable by the time the Coinbase rewards actually run out.
0: So let's go back to that that point because I uh, I can't get my head around how Bitcoin's block space becomes insanely valuable. While also, uh, Munim, you said that Bitcoin is a settlement network, not a transactional network, right? It's not. It's not a Visa. It's not a Mastercard. It's just where Bitcoins come to to settle, which seems to be in alignment with what Justin was saying, where the main use case for BTC is holding. It's for saving your wealth. You can use Bitcoin without actually ever making a transaction on the network for years, if not decades. Uh, in theory, Satoshi has used Bitcoin without actually making a transaction on on it ever since 2009. Um, and so where do you think all this demand for Bitcoin block space, which is the way that the block, space, block uh, chain sustains its own security, where do you think this demand comes from?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think I have a great example that actually answers your question and Justin's critique as well. Uh, so recently, Bitcoin NFTs started taking off. So every single NFT has its data, the hash, stored on Bitcoin in every single transfer uh, also results in information, right? So if you just look at an NFT market, uh, so again, it's a big O of NFTs
0: here, not a big O of uh, the- We're gonna need you guys to define big O because that goes uh, off so my head.
2: So big O is basically, it's a. Uh, let I mean, let me try to simplify it. So when you're looking at a function, uh, what is the input? that is going to grow, that is the main uh, vector that is going to help grow something, right? So if something is dependent on the number of miners, then let's say if, if miners go from 10 to hundred, the, the, the resulting function is going to grow based on that, right? So let's say if some, something is dependent on the, on the block, uh, the number of blocks, but not the transactions. So it doesn't matter if you do 10 transactions or a thousand transactions, it's only going to do like one hash per block because it's, 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 it's based on the blocks, not on the transaction, right? So in, in this example, in NFTs example, I think is a perfect one because then the data on Bitcoin is growing based on the number of NFTs, not based on the stack's blocks, right? Okay. And, and so in, in, in that sense, I think that that example basically clarifies that, that why would Bitcoin's block space be valuable? Because if Bitcoin NFTs are taking off, then people are paying paying uh, for
1: that but also real, just real quickly too I think you know we're looking far into the future here when you're talking about the uh, the supply schedule com- being complete and there' being you know the final 21 million Bitcoin uh, the world in our eyes is fully on a Bitcoin standard. everybody is using it. I think a lot of us see the uh, the block space on Bitcoin It probably won't be used by the average. Person or the average user, it'll be used by very large institutions, banks, um, for trade, global trade, where they will want to see finality on very large transactions. And so far into the future, when you know all of us are dead, because that's how far away it is when the reward runs out. Not a single person on the planet today will probably be alive unless they live for. I mean, I guess they could live for 120 years, but. That space will be used by the very, very large institutions, global trade, and they will most definitely be able to keep the value of that block space up.
0: Okay, so I want to return to uh, one of the, the, the original question, which is, um, we, we started talking about ETH and Bitcoin as sound money based on the sustainability of, of the chain. Uh, and so, uh, Dennis and many of you guys just gave some cases as to why there will be block space demand, which will generate the fee market required to sustain Bitcoin. Um, uh, but I would contend that the growing fee market of Bitcoin uh, actually needs to increase at a rate that's commensurate to the actual growing in value of BTC. Uh, because it's one thing to have dollar denominated transaction fees be sustainable, but I don't think we want to uh, secure our chains based on the value of the dollar because the value of the dollar is fleeting. So when in a Bitcoin denominated world, the value of the Bitcoin blockchain, the security uh, budget needs to be sufficiently large in Bitcoin terms. And I think even with the decreasing fee budget in, in Bitcoin terms, the growing dollar value doesn't grow at a rate fast enough for uh, to maintain security when the value of a Bitcoin is growing way faster than the value of a dollar. Does that all make sense?
2: I think, I think it makes sense, like what you're trying to say, but... I think my, I think my answer uh, is pretty simple there. Like, I look at Bitcoin security budget to be something where uh, it, is, it needs to be so high that even a state actor would find it very hard to attack them. So when people talk about difficulty that bitcoin difficulty is going down like recently for example bitcoin difficulty went down when miners moved out to china i wasn't worried about it at all at all because on an absolute scale the difficulty level is so high that the bitcoin network is secure right so what we're talking about is really i think we can put aside like proof of work we can just look at the incentives available for the miners and are the incentives resulting in a high enough difficulty level that a state actor would find it very hard to actually come in and attack the people work out, Right. So I think that value, that number, given like how, how early we are in crypto right now and that difficulty level is already so high. Um, I think 20 years from now, 30 years from now, maintaining that level of difficulty uh, would not would not be an issue in my view.
1: Another thing here I mean, too, I'd really like Justin. Did you wanna give final comments there? Cause I um since we're co-moderating, mm. uh, I think it would be good to also kind of flip this now and try to move the other direction. But I think, Justin, you should get the final comments here. But to start to move towards uh, is why is Ethereum sound money? You know, what's your argument about about that? Uh, you know, because obviously we could go back and forth all day on, on Bitcoin here. But would like to kind of hear what your guys' points are for why Ethereum is sound money and then uh, obviously get the back and forth. But Justin, final comments on, on what uh, Manib just said.
3: Yeah, so Muneeb just talked about, you know, resistance to to, to state-level actors. Um, I think that's an illusion. Um, basically, you can try and, and quantify the security, and um, you can talk about basically economic security, like how, how much economic resources are securing a particular blockchain. And when you look at, at Bitcoin, it's, it's relatively you know straightforward. What you do is you, you take the, the hash rate, which is about 150 million terahashes per second, and then you ask yourself, how much does it cost To manufacture and deploy one terahash per second now my my rough guess is that it's it's roughly 50 dollars. but you know some bitcoiners will say you know maybe it's like a hundred dollars but i don't think any reasonable bitcoiner will tell you that it's above a hundred dollars and so basically we're looking at roughly 15 billion dollars of economic security and in the grand scheme of things that's peanuts right like if you look at the the security budget for example of of you know of, of the us it's you know like 750 billion dollars per year um you know for, for 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 its army um and now you know maybe that's a good segue into why ethereum is, is 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 sound money um is you can you can start looking at you know the economic security of ethereum and it turns out it's several times larger than than bitcoin and for Ethereum, it's even easier to, to to see to what the economic security is. Is you just take the the number of ETH tokens which are currently staked, multiplied by the the price of each uh, token, um, and uh, you get roughly thirty two billion dollars. So even today, um, it's 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 you know two to four times larger economic security uh, versus versus Bitcoin. And I still believe that thirty two billion dollars is 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 too small, right? We need to have a trillion dollars of economic security. And I see a roadmap with Ethereum to achieve that You know, partly because we have this guaranteed um, uh, issuance. Uh, but I just don't see it for Bitcoin in the context of this exponentially decreasing um, issuance.
0: And just to ground the listeners so far, the reason why we've been talking about transaction fees and transaction volume inside of blockchains in security is that all of these things uh, relate to the soundness of the money because it's a, it's relates to its ability to hold value over time. So when blockchains can be secure over time, the money of the blockchain can also hold its value over time. Just wanted to, to make sure that we, we had the listeners grounded on that.
1: Yeah, that's a fair uh, point to make just so that people kind of understand where we're coming from and moved away from the, the aspects of money to being just purely security focused right. so i'm sure we won't need to cover security too much when it comes to the conversation around why ethereum is sound money so let's go ahead and do that with you uh, david and justin why um, do you believe that ether is the most sound money
0: well, David to the first. yeah, to elaborate on what what Justin said, I, I think the proof of stake consensus mechanism is the most efficient consensus mechanism possible. Proof of stake collapses down the cost of providing providing security down to the absolute minimum. Uh, a computer connected internet, uh, computer, uh, internet connected computer, excuse me, uh, and which most everyone already has. Uh, and then after that, what's left is capital. And really, when you think about it, all Uh, Consensus mechanisms, all security mechanisms are just a bit of computing power, an internet connection, and then something for that individual to lose if they do something wrong. And capital is the most efficient form of that, right? If they have a bunch of capital at stake, they have a significant incentive to not lie to the blockchain, which is what makes the blockchain secure. Proof of work has the same dynamic. There is uh, computers with computational resources. The Bitcoin computers are really, really big computers with a lot of computational resources. Uh, And then they also represent capital as well. Uh, Roughly one third of proof of work um, staking or um, um, uh, validation comes from the fact that uh, the cost of operating a mining farm is one third computer hardware, which kind of is your stake. It's kind of like proof of stake with extra steps. But the collapsing of security down to proof of stake allows for really, really efficient security. And what this means is when you have efficient security is that it actually costs very little to secure your blockchain. And when it costs very little to secure your blockchain, you you don't have to issue as much money to pay for security. Uh, and so because uh, because the cost of security are really, really efficient. So you have very, very little issuance to secure a very large market cap of economic activity, which goes and lends itself to the property of sound money. If you have a global crypto economic system that Uh, is secured by the most efficient consensus mechanism possible, which I believe is proof of stake, then you have the least amount of issuance possible, which retains the value of the supply of the currency by issuing the least while being able to secure the system. Um, So proof of stake uh, is one of the properties that makes Ether very, very sound money.
2: Yeah, let me let me um, ask a couple of questions there. So, so I think there are two aspects of proof of stake that I I generally um, have, have concerns about. And by the way, uh, just to just to clarify, I think proof of stake can work for certain types of applications where the uh, stakes aren't that high. But we're talking about building a global reserve currency, and you know people's livelihoods are dependent on this, and this is the Kind of like the base layer system upon which everything else is dependent on. So, so the stakes are very, very high over here. So I think the the, the issue in my mind with Proof of Stake is kind of like twofolds. Uh, the first one is if you go back to the beginning of uh, this podcast, I was talking about that can a normal person, a normal normal user of the internet, uh, just on their laptop, independently verify that is this the correct version of the blockchain or not? Right. So so that you can't do with Proof of Stake uh, because of the bootstrapping problem. Uh, and we will we'll, we can we can debate that, but I I think this is this is almost like a, a, a proven theorem in computer science that you have a bootstrapping problem and proof of stake. You have to trust certain nodes to be able to boot up. You can't boot up on on your own. I, I think Justin is, is wants to say something over here, so I'll let let him. Let him talk. No, go ahead. Um, I mean, you're talking about connectivity. So yeah. Ahead. So I can I can I can. I can define the problem very concretely, right? So let's say I'm, I'm a user, I'm sitting somewhere in Japan, and somebody gives me like five different copies of the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, I don't have to talk to anyone to independently verify which version should I go for, right? If I'm the same user sitting in Japan, someone gives me five copies of a proof of stake blockchain, I don't know what to do. Like, I have no idea how to verify which copy is the correct one.
3: Yeah, so this this is something that's been like talked about uh, at nauseum, um, and basically um, you, you can you can argue that Bitcoin as well has weak subjectivity in, in pretty much the exact same way. Um, basically, the problem is that you know if you if so, for some reason you're a caveman and you've been disconnected from the internet for for a very long amount of time, you know years, and you and and you come out of your cave and you 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 run your 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 Bitcoin clients, then you know you'll be able to sync to, to 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 the head. I mean that that's just not true in practice. You know, one reason, for example, is that um, you need to be downloading the latest version of of the software, you know, to have all the security patches, to be able to to run the latest consensus rules and and, and verify them. And so in the process of downloading this latest client, you, unless you're going to be verifying, you know, if your caveman is very sophisticated and he's going to verify every single line of code, which no one does, they're going to be trusting basically that source of where you've you've downloaded the, the software. Another aspect of weak subjectivity, which exists in Bitcoin is, Basically, the the, net, the peer-to-peer networking uh, bootstrap nodes. So when you connect to to the network, basically there's a set of IP addresses, um, which is which you're going to query the very first time you, um, you 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 run your software. And if for some reason or another these IP addresses are compromised, then they can just give you a version of the world which is just not the, the true version. And so they can fool you into believing that some some chain is the longest chain when actually it's not. And so weak subjectivity is just a, a fact of life for both Bitcoin and Ethereum.
2: I, I, I absolutely disagree here because I think the core invention behind blockchains is that you can trust the state of the blockchain independently, right? If you take away that core property, like the rest of the problems that you're describing those are all known computer science problems with really good solutions, like how do you verify software downloads? How do you verify that you're connecting to the, the right peers and, and can verify that you're, you're uh, downloading the data chunks uh, accordingly? Like these things have existed even before blockchains, right? Like these, these things have been there for like 20 years or something like that. The only new thing that blockchains are adding is that uh, you can independently verify that this is the correct version of the blockchain If you are throwing away that property, then you start entering the land of like, why are you using a blockchain? Just like start trusting other people for for running some sort of a consensus system.
3: To be clear, you don't have to trust people if you stay offline a small enough period of time. And you know, you talk about verifying like the the you know where you download the software from i'm imagining you talking about signatures so basically if you're going to download bitcoin core you're going to be verifying i don't know peter waller's signature or whatever and but you know here you're trusting peter waller you know that and it's it's the exact same thing with with subjectivity the way that you bootstrap from weak, weak subjectivity is that you you have whatever trust assumption you want to make and then they will give you some sort of s- state of a checkpoint of the state, and then you can take it from there. But again, this 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 checkpointing mechanism is only required if you're a caveman, uh, which most people are not. And think, if you are this, a caveman, this, then the same problem applies to Bitcoin.
2: I, th- I think this this problem is much deeper than that, right? Because it's, first of all, it's not about cavemen. But uh, in in the ethos of decentralization, a normal user should be able to self-verify that is this the correct copy or not. So you're basically breaking the number one ethos of decentralization that a normal user cannot self-verify. You always have to trust somebody else to be able to then verify that, okay, I can only verify if I trust the initial state and then I can verify the state from there. Like, let me- me No, no, it's not just the initial
3: state. It's the software as well. Like, are you as a normal user going to read every single line of code and compile from source and run the executable? We, we, can,
2: we, we can get into how to verify that you have the right software. There are many ways of actually doing that. Like, people people have been solving that problem for ages. That's not a unique thing to Bitcoin. Like, you're, 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 you're conflating uh, how do you verify that you got the correct copy of the software with verifying a blockchain. Like, you, can you all agree that it's important to verify that the blockchain state is correct or not or or be able to independently verify that blockchain state is correct then why why do you even use a blockchain then you just you just trust whatever is running on the other side of 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 your computer
3: when you have a state machine you have the state but you also have the state transition function and that is going to be your your code and you can't just dissociate the two and just verify the state without you know verifying the, the state transition function you need the two verified
2: so let me let me let me pose the same problem in a different way now because of bitcoin's proof of work let's say there's an attacker that wants to fool you and is trying to create multiple invalid versions of the history every single fork actually requires an insane amount of work to be done so the attacker is limited in how many blockchain histories the attacker can actually produce to even present to you whereas in proof of stake I can give you a million different copies of a blockchain and you wouldn't be able to tell which one is the correct one because it requires me just signatures to create a million different copies and a million different histories of a proven state blockchain
3: no because um in the context of bitcoin you can have you know, if you're attacking the networking layer with these bootstrap nodes, you can have an Eclipse attack, and basically you can censor every single, you know, chain that that has done a lot of work. And so the ch- even just a small amount of work is enough to fool. And same thing for the code. You can have consensus rules, which just fork off because they consider invalid, chain, you know, legitimate chains, which have done a lot of work, and then therefore you're falling back to these insecure chains, which have done almost no work.
2: Sorry, sorry. Let, let's say, let, let me make it more concrete. Let's say I want to make a change uh, that goes 30 days back. I would need to do 30 days of work to be able to create that separate version of the chain, Re- right? And real let, quick
1: though, um, could Manib, could you do one, this last comment here and then Justin, and Le- Le- we should probably get back to Proof of Stake, just like... We should move on, yes, sure, yeah, yeah, sure, Yeah, sure. but like, J- Manib and then Justin, one more.
2: Sure. So I think uh, what I'm saying is, let's make an attack very concrete. That let's say I'm an attacker, I want to change the uh, history of the blockchain uh 30 days back so in proof of work i'll have to do 30 days of work to be able to even try to fool somebody that this is not the correct version of the blockchain like that's that's the core thing in a proof of stake system i can give you 10 million different copies that have each have a different version 30 days back without doing any work that's that's the part of the part of the argument
3: the work argument doesn't hold because you can have rules which disqualify chains which have done a lot of work and so you could have a chain for example which where the difficulty kind of decreases you know in, in such a way that or you know a chain with very few blocks for example um there's, there's once you once you mess around with the state transition function you you, you can't validate state that's like a fundamental
1: premise <laughs> Some of the things that I'd like to go back to, because just in regards to some of the points that David was bringing up, some of my core issues around um, proof of stake, which my really, to be honest, my biggest issue is moving from proof of work to proof of stake. I think it's been pretty well shown that Ethereum has had a very difficult time doing that and that um, I've heard, you know, I keep hearing over and over again that's going to happen. I think that's a kind of a separate argument that a lot of Bitcoiners try to make. Um, the one that I really would like to attack is this idea that proof of stake um is a better model because it will incentivize saving okay yeah you know i could i can i could see that but my problem Uh, i'll
0: actually pitch why proof of stake is a better model in a different way
1: yeah (laughs) let me finish this one and then you can you can pitch it in in another way as well but some of the biggest issues that i see with proof of stake is it it does kind of incentivize i would i would say incentivizes hoarding in a similar way that Bitcoin does. But the problem is that it incentivizes hoarding with the people that are minting the ETH. So those that are creating the ETH are incentivized to hold on to it. The difference between proof of stake and proof of work is the miners have an economic cost, and they are incentivized to distribute the Bitcoin that they are creating. Uh, But what ends up happening is it's harder to disperse, and you have this large consolidation of supply in the hands of the wealthiest people potentially on the network, uh, which really inevitably, when you look past in the past, in the history of money, the uh, incentive to debase, manipulate, or corrupt a monetary supply or issuance is always happens when there is a heavy amount of people holding on to a large amount of that supply because there is an incentive to manipulate or debase the currency. Um, so and this is the real big problem that comes down to is there will be a time when uh, the human control over the Ethereum issuance will lead to debasement and manipulation, in my opinion. The other part is, again, just this transferring from proof of work to proof of stake. I'm not sure it's uh, I'm not sure it's possible. I mean, it feels like it's like open heart surgery. Uh, while flying a rocket ship hasn't been done yet. Seems like a lot of other protocols don't have too much of a problem with uh, being on proof of stake. But I think from the very beginning, you can go all the way back and see that this has been a very big issue for Ethereum. Um, and and when you were talking about this minimum viable security, minimum viable issuance, you know, it's in, it's great in in theory. But, uh, you know, it's kind of a problem also in a sense that you have been taking from the miners over time. You went from five ETH to four ETH to three ETH. And then also, now also again with EIP-1559, you are taking away the fees from these miners. These are your you know paid security guards that you guys have been having on your team. And they've kind of been getting screwed over by you when you decide to move from, proof of work to proof of stake. I see a real issue here because these people that you have, you know, essentially been screwing over for the last several years are not going to be incentivized to protect the chain for two reasons. One, you've been screwing them over. But two, the other one is that uh, you're going to be dropping the difficulty bomb and that is going to ruin the chain that they are protecting. Well, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been a, uh, have ever had employees? I don't ever warn my employees that I'm going to fire them three or six months in advance tends to lead to instances of them colluding to steal from me, you know, right? You, usually what you do is you fire someone, you walk them out the door. That's not gonna be the case from proof of work to proof of stake. I, I really do see, uh, you know, the MEV getting kind of out of control. I think you'll get, uh, uh, you'll have time banded attacks that kind of get out of control and it could be a very turbulent time ahead
0: for Ethereum as it moves to proof of stake. Justin, I have the things I wanna say, but do you wanna take this one first? Sure. So many things have been said. I mean,
3: one of them is you know execution risk, uh, and you know part of it is just you know having software without bugs that works. But there's also the uh, the risk that miners will somehow revolt and, and 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 attack the system, and you know the if we if we zoom out on the topic of at hand, which is which is money and monetary premium, um, you know you, you can start looking at at a whole list of shelling points, right, um, and really like in my in my mind there's there's two types of shelling points there's kind of these these short term competitive shelling points and then there's the really important long term competitive uh, shelling points which are based on network effects now the two really important ones in my opinion uh, in terms of the long uh, the, the long term ones is one security of the blockchain and two scarcity of 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 the asset of of the token now it is true that bitcoin and, and and in that cat in these long-term categories, I I I truly believe that that Ethereum is kind of orders of magnitude ahead of Bitcoin. And and, and as such, Bitcoin has lost the, the, the long-term game. Um but if we look at the these these short-term ones, you know, there's a whole list of them. So you know, you can look, for example, what at finance financialization, right? So the notion that Bitcoin you know, has an ETF now. You know that makes it more money than Bitcoin, than Ethereum. I, I yes, yes, I would agree. But uh, you know, these are very, very sh- short-term things that basically have a, a lifetime associated with it. It's a shedding point which will, uh, which will disappear. Um, and actually, if you if you take a historical perspective in financialization specifically, like the timescale just keeps on, on on decreasing. So you know, Bitcoin came six years ahead of. Of, of Ethereum in terms of the, of the genesis. And then you can ask, for example, when, you know, h- how much of an advantage did Bitcoin have for Grayscale? Well, it turns out there was three years, kind of. B- Grayscale had the Bitcoin product three years before Ethereum. And then you can ask yourself, what about futures? Well, it turns out that's that's half of that again. Uh, you know, Bitcoin had had futures one year and a half before, before Ethereum, and you can ask the same thing for 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 etfs and they wouldn't be surprised if it was also half of 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 the of the previous thing and execution risk is the exact same mindset it's kind of this short-term myopic mindset of short-term um shedding points and the reason is that execution risk well guess what it disappears once we've executed (laughs) and the same thing for attack risk you know it just disappears once there's no more miners, once proof of work has been removed, so maybe you're right. You know, may, maybe there will be issues, but it's, it's very short-term thinking, in my opinion. Another thing that was point that was brought up is on, on distribution, and this this is a, a misconception that somehow uh, Ethereum uh, proof of stake is not distributive. Proof, and the the reason is very simple: is because when you um, you you stake ETH and you receive the rewards, that counts as income. In, in all jurisdictions pretty much and income has inc- income tax associated with it and that's let's say roughly 50% and so you have this natural kind of. Forcing function to sell your ether, you need to sell 50% of it, and so that is a very similar distribution mechanism to. to to Bitcoin. Bitcoin, you need to sell your Bitcoin because you need to pay for electricity bills and hardware bills. Well, it turns out that in the case of Ethereum, you need to pay your income tax bills. Uh, so depending for, on for governments
1: the, for your issuance. That's an interesting yeah, take I for, haven't heard.
0: For, for, for the record, I actually, uh, I think there's a, a better argument than uh, the income tax being a forced distribution. Uh, although it, it is worth noting that that is actually blanketed across the world. The 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 distribution aspect of proof of stake comes from the nature that it, proof of stake has made it trivial to become a validator to the chain. Which meaning, and so, Dennis, we talked about this last time we debated. The Bitcoin and Ethereum have both the same problem of we have this money and when you have money, you have a money printer somewhere. The Bitcoin protocol can print money if it wanted to. The way that Bitcoiners and Bitcoin has solved this is that it's just capped like, just, uh, just capped that, just killed it, it's just like, no, kill the money printer, destroy it, take a hammer to it, it's gone. And that's what Bitcoin is. So like no, no issuance for anyone, no one gets anything. Ethereum does something different. It says issuance for everyone. And all you need to do is bring your computer and capital because everything is involved with capital. Uh, And so by collapsing the cost of validating the chain, Ethereum solves the, the seniorage problem of like, all right, we have this money printer. What do we do with it? By spreading it out to the maximum number of people. And by doing that, you also receive maximum decentralization and maximum security. So whereas Bitcoin just eliminates seniorage, Ethereum tries and finds a way to spread it out to the maximum number of people by reducing the cost of providing security to the absolute minimum.
2: My, my question for uh, ETH's money is, I, I was actually a bit surprised when I started even seeing the meme, because for the longest time I kept hearing that ETH has gas for smart contracts, which actually made a ton of sense to me. Right? Like ETH deserves a lot of credit for uh, basically inventing and, and, and uh, smart contracts and then getting some of the early applications there. And so in my mind, ETH was always a smart contract platform, and then it has competition there. And three years ago, you know, everybody would laugh at when somebody would say, no, these other platforms are going to build build better, faster uh, smart contract systems, and then they're going to get traction. But I think fast forward to like 2021, and that's happening, right? So the Solanas of the world, the avalanches of the world, I would even argue, to some extent, stacks of the world, they are getting all these applications and Ethereum is kind of like losing at home ground. Like this is the main thing Ethereum is supposed to do. And I just don't understand why is Ethereum even trying to pick a fight with a blockchain that has a that has just one use case. It is a single purpose use case. The only thing it is trying to do is to be the best money layer for the planet, right? So I like help explain to me how does those two use cases Uh, differ from each other? Like what type of technology do you need to build to be a really good smart contract platform? And what type of technologies do you need to build for being a really good money layer? And which fight are are you trying to pick?
3: So one of the realizations, I guess, for me is that it's impossible to be, you know, an outstanding Smart contract platform without the monetary premium, the monetary premium, the monetary premium area, and it's necessary for two reasons. The first one is that it's it's necessary for security, right? And the whole product of the blockchain, the block space that we're selling, is all about settlement guarantees, aka security. Um, and in order to achieve this, you know, resistance against state actors we just need tons and tons of, of 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 monetary premium like what right now we have 32 billion dollars of economic security it's it's too small by you know a couple of orders of magnitude um so we we we, we, we must grow that if we're going to build a a platform which is resistant to to to, to World War Three. another reason why it's required is because um we need trustless um economic bandwidth right the, DeFi is, sorry, the small contracts in many, many cases are, are interesting because they manipulate value and, and you, know, you enter the world of, of finance and in the world of finance, you need collateral. And when, when you want to build these, these, these trustless and decentralized applications, you want to minimize the number of assumptions that you're making. So at a minimum, you, you're taking on the assumption that firm is secure. Right. That's the kind of like the, the the basic assumption, but you don't want to be making additional assumptions. So, so like the, the most natural way forward to not take on assumptions is to just reuse the native money, which is ETH, as your collateral, as your economic bandwidth. If you try and do something else, for example, you try and use wrapped Bitcoin, then now suddenly you're trusting BitGo. Um, and, and that—that's very. And now, now you, you know your weakest link is is, is BitGo, which 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 is not satisfactory. Um, but it 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 turns out that kind of security and, and scarcity are, are are mutually beneficial. Um, the the more you know um, security that we have, the more transactional utility that we have, the more fee burner that we have the more monetary premium that we have, which gives us more economic security, which gives us more utility. And so it's really a foolish game to try and detangle and disassociate the notion of security and utility and monetary premium and money. So So said differently,
0: Muneeb, I think the way that you presented this is that like, uh, you know, Ethereum pick a lane, like, are you money or are you a smart contract platform? And I would actually turn that around on you and just kind of which is going to be reframing exactly what Justin Drake just said, where he says you need economic activity to drive scarcity. Actually, I think Bitcoin needs to do some more DeFi stuff. And also the whole ETH killer phenomenon needs to do some more Bitcoin things. It's not Ethereum that needs to pick a lane, it's Bitcoin that needs to generate internal native finance. And then also the ETH killers need to actually become decentralized so they can have the monetary premium. So it's actually the opposite ends of the spectrum that need to come and do both. Because it's both that gives you both the decentralization and security that allows you to be money, while also generating the internal native financial economy that drives blunt demand for block space, which generates scarcity into the L1 asset.
2: Yeah, so I can, I can give you the Bitcoin model, right? So the Bitcoin model is that Bitcoin is the decentralized money layer. Then you have a smart contract layer like Stacks. Uh, Stacks is purely a gas asset, never trying to be money, it will never be money because it literally depends on Bitcoin for its existence. It can't exist without Bitcoin. And there's a separation between what is money, what is the store of value, and what is the gas asset, and then they can they can interact with each other, and and you know you can you can use the system that way. But then extending that argument, like do you guys then also believe that every other smart contract platform, or uh, forget about smart contract platforms like Solana, uh, look at you know Polygon. So you know Polygon recently had more daily active addresses than Ethereum. So with that type of network activity happening, does Matic becomes money and would start kind of competing with Ethereum? Would Solana uh, will become money and Avalanche will become money? Are we all in that game? Because my model of the world was very simplistic. Like Bitcoin is money. Let's just bring smart contracts to it. There are a bunch of other smart contract platforms as well. But this argument seems to say that everything is trying to be money.
0: In my opinion, everything that is an L1 token is trying to be a global sovereign non uh, store of value asset.
3: Yeah, I agree, and I think this is actually part of the reason why I believe that that stacks is kind of you know a little dubious in the sense that one, one of the things that that stacks is, is 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 claiming is that it it has is inheriting the security of of Bitcoin, but I don't know how to how, how to do such a thing. Like my, my my guess is that if you know more than fifty percent or more than some threshold. Uh, of the stx tokens are controlled by an attacker then that attacker can just you know do all sorts of bad things like censorship and m- maybe even break uh, that's, uh, break, that's break not, not
2: how stacks works stacks is not a proof of state system there are separate miners that use bitcoin we we don't need to get into it but that's not how stacks works
3: right but you do have
2: an honesty assumption in addition to the honesty assumption that bitcoin has uh, so parts of the applications basically think of them as cross chain right so part of your application is literally just running on Bitcoin uh, as the lending application you're you're just doing bitcoin transactions to lend your bitcoin and part of the application is running on the stack side uh, so your collateral for example is in a smart contract on stacks and then that is settling those, those that data is settling on bitcoin and there are miners involved that are running on the bitcoin side. It's, it's not it's not proof of stake. I know that's the world you guys come from, but I, we can we can get into it separately.
3: Right. But let, let's let's remove the like the, the programmability aspect for now and just just think of Stacks as just like a, a sidechain that provides a bit more throughput. Like, are you claiming that Stacks has solved Bitcoin scalability um, in a trusted fashion and it has exactly the
2: same security model? It, it helps like how lightning helps, right? So lightning can scale payments and then you're doing settlements on Bitcoin. So Stacks is the programming layer. Uh, it has smart contracts. So you can do it a lot more smart contract activity that is eventually settling uh, on, on the Bitcoin chain. And then, then you have the cross chain connections between them. So you can build applications that basically are running on both.
3: Okay, now my understanding is that there's this, this, this proof of transaction aspect where basically, I haven't looked into it too much because I don't completely understand the d- documentation, but basically what, I'm, what I understand is happening is that there's money, Bitcoin specifically, which is being sent to various STX holders, presumably. Um, and as an attacker, if I'm willing to, ju- I have a lot of Bitcoin and I'm just willing to spend and give a lot of Bitcoin to these STX holders, then presumably I have some amount of control. Um, and if I'm willing to spend more than what the others are doing, then I can start doing bad things like censorship or you know, reverting bad chains uh, or stuff like that. Yeah.
2: So the way to think about that is a Stacks follows the proof of work type of security model, uh, but instead of right. burning electricity, you're actually consuming Bitcoin. So you. You're, so that's exactly. where this the security budget is coming from. Uh but that's that's like specific to how kind of like stacks functions. My main argument is that separating the money layer and letting the money layer be the money layer and building basically contracts around it is is one model. Uh and I actually disagree that I don't think like if you talk to people at Solana or Avalanche and other places, like I don't think they would say that they're trying to do money. Like they, they would argue that they're they're not trying to do money, they're trying to build you know, decentralized computing platforms that are valuable for different reasons than than decentralized money is valuable.
0: I think if they see, uh, think don't think that they're trying to be money, they're making a mistake. Like maybe they don't know that, but again, if you commit to being an L1, you commit to trying to fight for monetary premium.
3: Right, and Munib, you're saying that Stacks is secured in a very similar way to proof of work, except that the work is spending this, this Bitcoin. Um, and so basically, the that probably that, means that Stacks has, you know, orders of magnitude, maybe 10x or 100x less security than Bitcoin, simply because, you know, the expenditure of electricity on Bitcoin is just so much larger than the expenditure of, of, of Bitcoin for Stacks. And as such, if Stacks doesn't compete for monetary premium, it just won't have the security, and then it just will be irrelevant.
2: Yeah, so I think Stacks does have less security budget right now than Bitcoin, but the design is very, very uh, interesting where all of the fork histories of Stacks are secured by Bitcoin, literally. So you benefit from the security of Bitcoin because Bitcoin is securing all fork histories uh, on, on Stacks. But here's the interesting thing. Even if I take your argument that Stacks is less secure than Bitcoin, let's say somebody attacks Stacks. The core argument of keeping your money there separate is that nothing happens with Bitcoin. And, and securing the money layer, in my view, is the most important thing. Once the world gets decentralized money, there can be many smart contract platforms. There can be many type of different applications that are that are built around.
0: See, that's actually something that I think a lot of Ethereans might might agree with. We just separate our stacks differently. Uh, and so uh, you called, you called uh, Solana and all these other ETH killers as like computing environments or you know smart contract platforms. And the way that I would phrase that is that these are uh, execution-optimized blockchains, as in they are optimized uh, blockchains that have uh, sacrificed decentralization in order to increase scale. In the uh, Ethereum world, and really this is just a neutral technology, roll-ups are the same thing. They are uh, execution-optimized Networks, except and that they have uh, sacrificed decentralization to be layer twos on Ethereum, preserving the money layer, which is the asset transfer layer of Ethereum, which is uh, contrary to a lot of what Bitcoiners say, actually a very simple L1. Like it's generally pretty simple as far as it goes. Maybe proof of stake gets a little bit complex, but in the grand scheme of things, you have all these compartmentalized financial application layers, these rollups, where is very very performant, uh, and then you can tap into the very very secure L1 of Ethereum. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier, where. Ethereum's trying to do it all. It's trying to have a decentralized layer one, which has a very significant monetary premium that is highly secure. And then it's a, uh, designed to have highly executable layer twos that can conduct all the financial activity. And so it literally gets the best of both worlds and it captures all of the money, uh, all the value of decentralized finance using the rollups, And then it injects it into the security layer of the, of the layer one.
2: Yeah. So can I, can I, can I give the Ethereum people some unsolicited design advice? Like I I think I've tried doing that back in like 2016, 2017, when I effectively said, you know, don't try to do sharding. You won't be able to do it. Try to work on L2s. Um, And I'm pretty sure Justin has spent like years and years. So I don't want to discourage him for doing that, but sharding turned out to be a pretty, pretty hard problem. Uh, I would say that if I was involved with Ethereum today, I would actually not try to move to proof of stake. Uh, you actually have a fairly secure network with proof of work right now. You actually have like a bunch of traction and usage and 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 L2s are are, are working. Like Arbitrum is coming online. That's actually a pretty solid, solid solution. If I was designing Ethereum today, I would stick with proof of work. I would actually try to limit even further the types of activity that can happen on the L1. Maybe you just want to do... Uh, Roll-ups. Maybe you just want to do fraud proofs at the L1, but discourage applications to be built at. Basically, try to minimize your L1 layer instead of like keeping it very complex. So any types of applications are being built, and don't try to do sharding. Don't 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 try to move to proof of stake, and then you have a serious shot at becoming a money layer because you inherit all of the properties that the the arguments that I was making, like why a proof of a proof of work system is actually. Uh, better because it actually has security defined outside of the system. We didn't get into this that much because what, what's happening with proof of stake is you're trying to define security within the system. Everything's pointing to each other, right? You need, you need, you need a referee that is actually sitting outside of the system that when things go south, you, someone can actually step in and be like, here is how you define security. Because one of the first things that's going to happen, if something goes south within the system, is how would you then recover from it right like i can give you an example uh all these blockchain systems are bft systems let's say for some reason you know a bunch of exchanges get compromised and close to 33 percent of your staking power uh is now not 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 uh not cooperating with the consensus system you will stop making forward progress right this this wouldn't happen in in other types of design so i think like Defining the security of the system outside of the system itself is actually the critical critical difference here.
1: Uh, there are also other some other problems as well. Um, I would like to kind of get your you and David and Justin's uh, answers on here. But a lot of times the argument from the Ethereum community is that it's economically infeasible to attack the proof of stake network. But uh, when you take into consideration this aspect of slashing, which could be one way to help make it more economically feasible, you could also target large holders of Ethereum. You could buy wallets off, of, um, off network so that there's no transaction. There's, people are unaware of the movement of those coins to other holders. Um, but you also have this issue with these derivative companies that have been formulating, so like the Lido protocol I think they've captured like a very large majority of the staking in a very short amount of time because they give uh, Ethereum holders this uh, token in exchange um, for Staked staking derivative on token, yeah. their on their protocol, and so it leads to this really kind of perilous situation where the supply is becoming and the uh, and the staking is becoming very very centralized in a very short small amount of hands. Combined with, you know, the idea that if someone has a large majority of the staking power or control, they could intentionally get into a a situation where they try to slash themselves and also slash their competitors, leading to a situation where they, again, have a larger control or percentage of the network. So I'd like to kind of hear what you guys have to say about uh, the ability to kind of supply
0: hijack the network and, and the staking protocols. First off, uh, Lido is a decentralized taking-as-a-service protocol. Uh, It's a DAO. Half of uh, Lido, I would say, is uh, um, distributed Rather than centralized, but relatively centralized, and the other half is completely decentralized. Uh, the people that are the aspect that's decentralized is that people come in and submit their ether to the validator network. It gets bonded to the beacon chain, and it also gets spread out amongst I think like eleven validators. Um, meanwhile, they're also working on uh, this thing called uh, sh- uh, shared secret validation, which is basically like splitting up the keys to a validator, allowing the actual validating network to also become decentralized. And so it's not, a, it's not a corporation in the same way that Coinbase is. And so when I see Ether going into Lido, I'm actually seeing it becoming a part, part of the decentralized like staking network that Lido is offering. And this is actually a model that a lot of Ethereum uh, teams' applications are actually expanding upon. RocketPool also comes to mind, where yes, the Ether is actually being uh, owned by a central contract address, but that contract address is represented by a very large number of people, both validators and ETH uh, suppliers. So it's actually not not accurate to say like, oh, all this ether in this one address is centralized.
1: Sure, but a lot of the governance tokens are being controlled by you know a very small amount of people, which sure. it does have an impact on the centralization of that supply. I mean, and it also leads to this issue with the costliness of money, which is a very important aspect going back to sound money. And uh, when you are able to essentially give your Ethereum to them and you get a one for one token back, it completely eliminates the costliness of production because you can be a part of the staking and you can be a part of the issuance without any cost to yourself whatsoever.
0: Justin, you have anything you want to say?
3: Yeah. So one of the things you said, Dennis, is that we're claiming um, it's impossible to attack the network with proof of stake. No, that's that's not the claim, right? The claim is is the exact opposite, is that with proof of stake, just like with proof of work, you can attack the network, but there is a, a cost, and that cost is... Is, is measured
1: in terms of economic security, and right now it's on the order of $32 billion. Well, sure, then, th- that's my point though, is that, that it's cheaper than that because of the fact that you can get away with slashing at your, com- your competitors. You can buy- No, no, um, no, that's not how holders. slashing work. It's you the can also, exact
3: opposite with slashing. You can so target top
1: is- holders. You can target very top holders, wallet holders. Um, you can collude with people. You can collude with exchanges in order to gain larger, su- larger controls of the supply. You don't actually have to buy $32 billion worth of ETH.
3: Sure. Um, but slashing is, is, is kind of the opposite of the way you portray it. It's like, you're talking about slashing like other people, but that's not how it works. The way that slashing works is that it slashes bad actors. If you make a provably bad action on the network, you you know, you make a double vote, for example, you're voting for two inconsistent things at the same point in time. It's a cryptographic event.
0: and,
3: And slashing is, is a recovery process. It's, when an attack happens, if and when it happens, and it is possible that it happens, all the bad actors who are provably bad, they just get removed. And so you're left with the, the good actors. Um, and so slashing is precisely what makes it difficult to attack the network in a repeated fashion. And this is a key differentiator with Bitcoin. When you look at an attack, you can look at it as a as a one-shot game, or you can look at it as a repeated game. In the case of Bitcoin, if somehow you, you manage to accrue 51% of the hash power, then you can attack Bitcoin over and over and over again. Um, so for example, you can just continuously censor it and not produce any blocks. Um, and so there's, there isn't this recovery me- mechanism. In the context of proof of stake, if an attack happens, sure, it can happen one time, but then we're gonna slash you. Okay, maybe it happens a second time, but then we'll slash you again. And guess what? Every time there's a slashing event, it becomes harder and harder to pull off the attack because there's just less and less ETH in, in, in circulation. And also, this is what Muneeb
0: was talking uh, oh, about, yeah. about external security versus internal security, where Justin Drake is saying that Ethereum actually derives its security by, not, by removing this, what uh, Vital calls this, bond camping attack of proof of work, which has external security. Bitcoin can't delete ASICs because they're external, but Ethereum can delete its own Ether because it is internal. And so it gives it a, an extra layer of defense when it comes to attack.
2: I would, I would, I would push back on that, right? So uh, think of it this way. Let's say that someone is able to get to up to 51% on Bitcoin. At that point, it's open warfare, right? Like anyone can go try to get more hash power and you're now fighting. You're not fighting publicly to, to gain more hash power. And the way Bitcoin and Nakamoto consensus works is uh, everything is probabilistic. Finality—you can actually go back in time, fork from another place, and the system has self-recovery baked in. Right? Whereas in proof of stake, you've actually removed one of the actors, which is the external miner. Now everything is internal. And once someone actually gains access to, let's say a massive hack happens, like Kraken gets taken down, Coinbase gets taken down, or something like that. Once someone has more than thirty-three percent of ETH, you're toast. You can never be able to make forward progress.
3: No, it's the opposite. If Kraken or Coinbase gets compromised, they will they will get slashed, and so they will get removed. I mean, if they abuse their power and 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 attack the 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 system.
2: So, so you're saying that in terms, you were in terms starts- of the you start slashing like the like thirty three percent of economic power on the network, and they will start losing their ETH. And then, the, the, what if the attack is bigger? Uh, what if? What if now? If we were talking about a fifty one percent attack on Bitcoin. Right? What? What if somebody has fifty one percent of economic majority power? But like, can they do anything on the network now? Because they're yeah, they're it, the majority. No. Well,
3: if they start abusing the power, they'll get slashed. That's kind of the the TLDR. But who's gonna
2: who's gonna slash them? They're the majority
0: at that point. Built into the network. Well.
3: It depends this okay we're getting technical here but there's kind of two types of slashing like one type of slashing is like the cryptographically provable slashing like you you, you made a double vote you know you, you tried for example to finalize two inconsistent checkpoints this is automatic slashing it happens you know by by, by the network there's an, another more subtle type of slashing where as a majority actor you can for example do censorship And here, basically, the 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 resolution is social social slashing. So the Ethereum community can see, okay, well, there's this one actor. It's clearly compromised. It's clearly attacking the network because it's censoring all these blocks. The good news is that we can identify this actor. We can see that you know, the owners of pub keys X X Y and Z are not producing blocks. For example, they're censoring the network. We're going to go ahead and socially slash them, which is you know, a hard fork, but it's a very similar process. Where at the end of the day, the attacker loses. Um, yeah. the, so, so the- I think the, I think the,
2: this 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 is this really highlights the difference in the two school of thoughts. Like in the Bitcoin camp, there's no concept of a social hard fork, right? That I'm going to remove the economic. I'm going to remove Bitcoin from somebody's wallets, or I'm going to change. I'm going to roll back the uh, the state of the blockchain. Use activated really forks those rights when when have when have when have they no, happened the they can history. happen is
3: the point the point is that they can happen
2: i think so that that i think that's i'm pointing to the difference right people can pick which camp speaks to them more i think but, on the ethereum side it is acceptable like like with the DAO fork to roll back history or to take away tokens from one wallet address and give it give it to some other address. and the bitcoin world that's completely unacceptable cannot cannot be tolerated by, by the community
3: wait you know that you have bitcoiners wearing you 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 know user activated soft fork uasf hats and you know you like saying that it's completely unacceptable i think is a mischaracterization and also it hasn't happened on, on ethereum and it, it, like the two networks are on par here like it's it can happen in both cases. And but, well, let me give you wanna, one example. I want to uh, compare. Ha-
2: sorry, sorry, sorry. I think people will get confused here. I want to compare a user-activated soft fork to the DAO pack right? There is a huge, this is like night and day type of a difference here. The user-activated soft fork is not changing the balances of anybody. Is not rolling back any transactions. It could. It is. It. it but it, there's no way, it would It wouldn't be a soft fork at that. It would be a hard fork at that.
3: No, it would be a soft fork. You can you can freeze funds. So let's let's assume, for example, that a quantum attacker comes in and steals ten percent of of the supply. This is exact same situation as the DAO. The DAO is basically one attacker being in control of a, a, an outstanding number of coins. Let's say ten percent or fifteen percent. Would you know, would the Bitcoin community say, okay, yeah, that's fine. You can, we're going to have just one at they, one attack they will, control. They would
2: literally, they would literally say that and it would never roll back. Okay. Back the but flag. at the
3: minimum, they would have the option to do a user activated fork to freeze those
2: funds and effectively destroy I, them. It, it will not fly into the Bitcoin community. It will literally not
0: fly into the Bitcoin community. That's a subjective argument not a technical one.
2: I, let's just make it a historic historical argument has never happened in the Bitcoin history, has happened in Ethereum's history. So that's just a historical fact.
0: Yeah, to me, this is a very weak argument because the DAO hack happened in 2016, which is five years ago, out of six Ethereum's, six, uh, Ethereum's uh, lifetime of six years. And there's also been a very significant number of proposed hard forks and proposed EIPs that did something like this for like fund recovery, famously, I think, EIP 999 to get their parity funds back. And and many, many other EIPs, which never really make it to the surface of the conversation just because they get denied. And so, like yeah, Ethereum had its like, mulligan but also at the same time, there's a lot of things that Ethereum has denied from proposals from the community that like Bitcoiners just don't hear about and kind of really illustrate the, the new level of immutability that Ethereum has, has achieved.
2: Right. So I think let's let's take, for example, EIP-1559, right? So here's the, here's the paradox of that. As a economic policy, I actually think it's a much better economic policy than the previous one, right? So I think I agree with you that it's an upgrade. As a Bitcoiner, I also know that that would not have happened if on, on Bitcoin, land, right? And I think this is where the fork on the road is that, and, and we don't know like what is going to win in the future, but I think it's important to differentiate the two paths. The path on the Ethereum side is that you're willing to have social consensus around monetary policy and then change the monetary policy. Bitcoin is saying that there's no concept of social consensus around these things. This is all proof of work and that's it right?
1: that is that is well, that a social consensus my, by the way mike that gets back to like this like i think it was the ultimate point and um our last debate between me and david which was that in order for something to truly be sound money it needs to not be able to be messed with or tinkered with um by human beings because throughout history we've had ten thousand years of history to prove that anytime you leave the door open for human beings to come in and change the monetary supply or the issuance, they will and have always done that. And so I think that it's very much the difference between the Ethereum camp and the Bitcoin camp is that you guys kind of think like, okay, well, as long as we as a community are okay with these changes, that's that's okay. Uh, but there will come a time, in my opinion, eventually, it could be t- 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, who knows, it could be beyond our lifetimes. But the fact that you leave that door open for human tinkerability to the monetary supply and issuance is ultimately uh, the, leaving the door open to corruption of the monetary supply itself. Like I asked you the question, I said, you know, if the dollar became deflationary today, right? Like they just, they finally raise rates, they stop printing money, they go full-blown um, uh, uh, deflationary with the currency, start burning it. Does that make the dollar sound money? And I think your answer was, was no, because you, the door is open to tinkerability. And uh, I said that the door is still open for tinkerability with Ethereum. And that was kind of my, my whole argument. I'm curious if you kind of had a,
0: something to say to that, to the effect of that since our last debate. Yeah, and I, I think the video aspect of this will actually help out here. Um, uh, so like B- Bitcoin, it has maximized for immutability more than anything else. And I think Bitcoiners don't really appreciate the fact that Ethereum is actually, the, the door is more open than it is with Bitcoins. Although I will say there is no such thing as perfect immutability. The do- Bitcoin, the, it's always a spectrum of how open the door is. The Bitcoin door isn't completely shut. It's open just a smidge. And the Ethereum doors open a decently more amount than Bitcoin. And then we have the dollar, which like the doors like all the way open, right? And so it's, it's, it's actually really hard to get changes into Ethereum. Like we don't implement that many changes and the changes that we do implement have like hundreds and hundreds of like highly technical eyes on them. And those people that are putting the eyes on the changes have thousands and thousands of eyes on those people. And so in stark contrast to this whole like 12 old white dudes behind a closed <laughs> door, Ethereum is like done on open forums in open in the court of public opinion and never actually really can do anything that's against the community. and but so. You know, while it's the there is a opinion. door that while it is a, is a door that is open, it's done in a very transparent way with the social commitment of eventually we are pushing that door more and more closed every step we can while we work on integrating all the technological upgrades that we can while we have this time of flexibly updating blockchains. Yeah, two think, things I, I you said I real wanna... quick
1: there, money one sec. I just want to say two sure. things. Um you said that Ethereum, you know, d- closing the door, it doesn't change very often, but you guys hard fork like every three weeks, four weeks, it feels like at this point, maybe even less than that. It's once, roughly
0: once every two years. And the things going into those uh, hard forks are just uh, very, very small. And the court of a public opinion, you know,
1: again, this is, the court of public opinion, it's it's human control. And you may have made the human control aspect of your money more decentralized than the dollar, we can 100% agree on that. I think the dollar is the ultimate shitcoin, coin. But um, when it comes down to it, you've left that door open. And there will come a time in my opinion, in the future for a majority of people to get into a position where they can make changes to their benefit that don't benefit all the users. I think most of the changes that you and you said this last time, every change that we've made, so far has benefited the users of Ethereum, but that doesn't mean that that will always hold true. Also, I would say that the community as a whole is, I think it's interesting that you don't include the miners in there because as I said earlier, you've went from five to four to three and now you're burning the fees and you so you have hurt people in your community. It's just interesting that you don't see the miners as part of your community.
2: Yeah, I, wanna, I wanna add some things that I think this is also a very fundamental point that when you're talking about making changes or even the need to make a lot of changes, versus not making changes, that's where um, conflating the smart contract platform with money actually hurts Ethereum in my view, because there will be more changes required to upgrade a smart contract platform. Right? Like maybe you could even argue that a proof of stake system is a good uh, upgrade for a smart contract platform, or maybe at least in my view, it is not a good upgrade uh, if you want to be money, right? So I think because those two things are confl- conflated at the, uh, the Ethereum base layer, uh, something like Solana, which in my view is just trying to be a smart contract platform can actually hard fork or upgrade. Their stakes are very different from a money layer. And if, if in the case of Bitcoin, where Bitcoin's money layer is separate and Stacks, the smart contract platform layer is separate, Stacks can actually hard fork more and just optimize for whatever functionality the developers are looking for without ever changing the the money layer.
0: This is also true with rollups. This is the same pattern there.
2: Exactly, which is, which goes back to my recommendation that you can even right now try to stick with proof of work, try to actually minimize the Ethereum-based layer in, instead of making it more complex and just do most of the most of the computation in, in roll ups and L2s.
0: I know Justin is itching to say something, but the but and Dennis, you said you said and uh, Munee just said something that I think aligns here is like uh, you guys are uh, kicking out the proof of work miners. Uh, just stick with proof of work. Under proof of stake, the users and the transactors and the security validators of Ethereum are all the same people, and so it's fundamentally more about aligning incentives where. Proof-of-work miners are really mercenaries. They have to be profit-driven. They have to sell the asset. And they represent a, 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 a two-tiered society that d- wraps around a chain. It's the people that have the ability to mine the chain and the people that, have the, that can only buy the asset from the miners, right? You have the, it's the same thing as like the, the money printer paradigm that we exist. There's two classes of, of citizens. There's people that can access the newly, freshly issued coin And then there's the the rest of the world, right? With proof of stake, we actually collapse all parts of Ethereum into you are all. Are you an NFT trader? Are you a DeFi speculator? Are you just uh, interested in the protocol? Well, all three of those people can all be Ethereum validators under proof of stake. And it's it's not that we're like kicking miners out the door, Dennis. Actually, miners have been uh, we've been noticing the accumulation of Ether by miners leading up to. The suspected timing of the merge, uh, and so miners are actually going to very elegantly morph from proof of work miners to proof of stake validators, preserving their business model. Justin, do you want to say anything? I know you were itching to ask something.
3: Yeah, I just have a few a few thoughts. Um, I guess on 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 the whole, um, you know, changing the rules aspect. I think. Um, one of them is on, on timescales. I, I very much disagree that it's, it's easy to change Ethereum and it's, it's changing regularly. And just to give a few examples, you know, proof of stake has been part of the plan since before Genesis. And so it will basically take seven years to deploy proof of stake, you know, another year from today, plus the, the six that uh, Ethereum has had. EIP-1559, these have been ideas that have existed or have originated from five years ago. It took five years to get EIP-1559. And one topic which, you know, you know, I joined the Film Foundation four years ago, and the, the one thing I was working on was sharding. And sharding is gonna take 10 years from start to finish. Um, and when you compare that you know, to changes with, with, with Bitcoin, it's actually, you know, we're more conservative than Bitcoin in a sense. If you look at you know, SegWit and Taproot, these don't take t- 10 years you know, to, to, to go and deploy, uh, they take you know, significantly less. Another thing that was you know, brought up is kind of the, the, the good ideas versus bad ideas. Like, you know, it's not about making a change in of itself, it's about what changes are being made. And I think Ethereum has an excellent filtering mechanism at play, and it's kind of the honest minority assumption kind of thing. If there is a bad idea, it just takes one single actor to blow the whistle and and show that this is a bad idea, and basically convince the EVE holders who are incentivized to bring in only good incentives, only good changes to come in. And so because of this honest minority aspect of of, of changes, I think Bitcoin has fundamentally kind of handicapped itself because it's it's given away the the innovation, um, innovation which is very safe because of this honest minority uh, aspect. Another thing that I want to bring forward is that eventual ossification for Ethereum is inevitable. It will happen. It will be fully ossified, just like Bitcoin. And this goes back to, you know, my short term thinking versus long term selling points. The fact that we are changing right now is like all myopic, it's all noise, it's all short term noise. And the reason why we eventually need to ossify is because as the the total value locked, on if there, you know, increases as there's more and more activity, it just becomes harder and harder to change, and the reason is that we have to make these these backwards compatible changes, and our, our level of paranoia and conservatism kind of scales with the amount at stake, and so, at some point, we kind of trapped in our success where we can no longer move and will be fully fully ossified, um, in a very similar to fashion to Bitcoin, unless there's some sort of like external looming threat, which is some sort of f- forcing function for us to take emergency action. And one of these forcing functions could be quantum computing, for example, which forces us to upgrade our cryptography. And then the final point that I want to bring forward, and, and, and this is something that Bitcoiners always sweep under the rug, is that the fact that the, the monetary supply is fully programmatic is an illusion. Right. The door every single four years kind of grows and grows and grows and grows. And eventually, this door, it, you know, because Bitcoin will be unsustainable from a security perspective, something has to change. And it turns out that the easiest thing to change is just to remove the 21 million cap and just have this con- continuous kind of tail issuance to, to secure the, 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 the blockchain.
1: Maneep, did you want to jump in there? Now,
2: I would just say the same thing, but that that's that's a very big assumption to say that uh, that Bitcoin would be not secure, given given the discussions we've had about Bitcoin being a settlement layer. And miners don't care if their incentives are coming from transactions or from coin visualize. Dennis,
0: anything right. to add?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, because you do say that um, Ethereum um, or Bitcoin gave up innovation, but there's some other ways that Bitcoin is innovating and that's in the world outside of bitcoin itself i think that it's pretty well understood at this point that the mining hardware that's being used the chip production that's occurring um is all is all innovations that are occurring because of the desire to find more efficient ways to mine Bitcoin because of the halving that is programmatic. Miners are forced to upgrade their, their uh, hardware. It's also incentivizing renewable energy throughout the planet. And I personally believe that we will have a, a, uh, a, a very big um, uh, period of, of time where the mining and the renewable energy production in this country and across the world will grow dramatically uh, because of the, the impact of proof of work and because of the impact of mining itself. And I think that also when you look at what's going on in the community, there's tons of work being played into uh, things like Stacks, things like Liquid to enable Bitcoin to do all the different things that Ethereum claims it can do. And, and something was said earlier too, uh, as far as smart contracts, NFTs, all of these things were created on Bitcoin. They were first invented on Bitcoin itself, um, but we haven't found a reason or a need to change the uh, the protocol in order to enable those functions to occur. Happy to let them occur over on Ethereum until all of it eventually comes back to Bitcoin.
0: I think the, uh, the closing statements that I will say is that there is a um, uh, the gap between Bitcoiners and Ethereans is much larger than what's uh, is perceived to be much larger than what's actually true. Uh, I Actually, I, I joke with Eric Connor a lot that, you know, Ethereans and Bitcoiners, they actually value have the same values they just believe in fundamentally different executions. Um, we believe in the immutability of money, we believe in decentralized, the world of decentralizing finance away from uh, the powers that be into the hands of the people. And it's really more about the execution about how we actually get that done. Uh, and so while there appears to be many, many differences between these two camps, uh, I think we all have to be reminded that um, we're all in the same industry, we're fighting for very similar things, and at least we're not a centralized blockchain.
1: Yeah. I mean that's yeah, ultimately driving man. screw the Fed. So
2: I can I, I can I can plus one that actually sometimes I joke that the difference between uh the Bitcoin model and the Ethereum model is actually one layer of indirection. All we're saying is that keep the base layer simple, build the complexity in a different layer, which is kind of like happening with, with the L2s anyway, right? And that's that's really the only technical difference that, that I'm talking This is literally what stack says on top on top of Bitcoin.
0: Justin, any closing statements from you?
3: No, not really. I mean, I, I do want to kind of echo this, you know, we're all going to make it in the sense that the industry as a, as a whole is obviously going to make it. Um, and I, you know, it, I, I think that we, you know, we're, we're all going to make it in the sense that it is very, very likely that, uh, you know, we're all going to be able to accrue monetary premium and, and be successful. I think it's just a matter of orders of magnitude. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Ethereum is in the, in the position, you know, to to just win in terms of, of these orders of magnitude uh, aspect of, of.
0: Well, Dennis, Muneeb, Justin, thank you for coming on and hashing out one of my favorite subjects, ETH versus Bitcoin as money, which inevitably these debates always go and find their own paths forward. And I think this one was no exception. So thank you guys for joining us on this Bankless live stream. Awesome. Thanks, David. Thanks Appreciate you so having Thanks. us on. Yeah, Get, it was fun. Dennis, do you want to give a quick shout out where people can find out more about uh, your content that you do and where you live in the Twitter sphere? Yeah, find me uh, Dennis
1: Porter on Twitter. If you search that, you'll find me easily. But if you want the handle, it's Dennis underscore Porter underscore. I spend a lot of time there. I do a ton of spaces in and out of there pretty frequently. I also have my podcast, so I do smart people shit. Uh, That's where you're going to find my channel. And then also I have another show under that uh, channel called The Update, where I regularly update listeners on just kind of what's going on in the Bitcoin space broadly. But also I try to bring on experts like on chain or um, technical analysis, mining. I also have a, as I've said before, the very beginning, I do have um, some experience in politics and I kind of try to make that a framework for what I do. As we all know, the crypto tax reporting amendment was a big problem. And so, you know, even though we fight on a lot of things, there are some things that we all fight uh, you know, mutual, uh, enemy. And that is the, you know, the governments around the world that are trying to screw us over and trying to suppress. So I look forward to, uh, continuing to fight politically here in the United States. And, uh, yeah, if, if you, uh, want to DM me and uh, my DMs are always open on Twitter.
0: Thanks Dennis Munib. where can people find you in the, uh, the world outside of this live stream?
2: Yeah. So I'm, uh, simply at Muneeb on Twitter. That's my first name M-U-N-E-E-B. Uh, and I spend all my time working on Stacks, which is a smart contract for Bitcoin. So if, you want, if you're interested in locking up capital and earning a pure Bitcoin yield on the main Bitcoin chain, uh, you can try out some of the smart contracts there. Or recently, I think there's Bitcoin culture being represented in Bitcoin NFTs through Stacks as well. So if you, if you want to collect some uh, Bitcoin native NFTs that describe the culture aspect of uh, Bitcoin, uh, you can you can check out some of the new marketplaces that are uh, coming
0: up on Instrax. Fantastic. And, and Justin, where can people find more about what you're up to and where you live in the Twitter world?
3: Sure, yeah. Um, I'm uh, Drake F. Justin uh, on Twitter, but you can also DM me on Telegram. I'm Justin Drake there. Or you can send me an email, Justin at Ethereum.org.
0: And then also you can check out his website, ultrasound.money. Uh, all right. Thanks, everyone, for coming here and houring uh, about one of my favorite subjects. Cheers. Take care. Thank you. Hey, we hope you enjoyed the video. If you did, head over to Bankless HQ right now to develop your crypto investing skills and learn how to free yourself from banks and gain your financial independence. We recommend joining our daily newsletter, podcast, and community as a Bankless Premium subscriber to get the most out of your Bankless experience. You'll get access to our market analysis, our alpha leaks and exclusive content, and even the Bankless token for airdrops, raffles and unlocks. If you're interested in crypto, the Bankless community is where you want to be. Click the link in the description to become a Bankless Premium subscriber today. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the channel for in-depth interviews with industry leaders, Ask Me Anythings and weekly roll ups where we summarize the week in crypto and other fantastic content. Thanks everyone for watching and being on the journey as we build out the Bankless Nation.